Welcome to the hashtag Faring Pod. At Faring, people come first. My name is Zoya Mabuto Muguditwa, and uh, today I'm joined by Mandy Rodriguez, clinical psychologist uh, who's in private practice in Johannesburg. And uh, Mandy joins me today to have a conversation around uh, or about the psychology behind conception, birth to baby, and in particular to look at this concept of owning your emotions through that journey. And so I am going to get straight into it. Mandy, thank you so much for coming. We're welcoming you back a second time. It's good to have you back. How Thank are you, you doing? Thank you so much. I'm doing well today. Thank you. Great. And maybe as we sort of kickstart the conversation to ask you to remind us a little bit about who Mandy is, what Mandy does. So I'm a clinical psychologist in private practice and I've worked in the field since before I was trying to have children. And I think that's what got me into the field. We all plan our families and it didn't go quite right for me. Then when I did have my kids, I had a postnatal depression. And beyond that, I started getting involved in initiatives with moms presenting with infertility, presenting with antenatal anxiety, and then postpartum depression. So it kind of covers the whole spectrum. And I'm really passionate about the field. Hmm. And I think it's encouraging when we hear that one's personal story is linked to the field they ultimately chose. So we're going to, I suppose, on one hand, get into your story as we also unpack some questions, uh, you know, some women listening to this might have. So a reminder again, uh, the topic is the psychology behind conception, birth to baby, owning your emotions. And so a starting place could be, what are some of the psychological factors that can affect conception and the birth of a baby. So thinking about that moment where you first find out I'm expecting, I'm pregnant, uh, let's let's have that conversation to kick off. I think February being Reproductive Health Month, we often tend to think about the moms who maybe are battling to fall pregnant and the moms struggling to conceive. And a lot of the debate is about that. But actually, that's one in six. If we look at the majority of the population and the people listening, those are the ones who maybe unexpectedly fall pregnant or maybe it comes as not so much of a joy. And we have to look at these moms because, let's face it, once that baby is in your hands, you don't regret it. But it's leading up to producing that live baby, delivering that baby, all the anxieties before about how am I going to manage, how am I going to cope. How's my relationship? So I just want to be cognizant of the fact that we're including everyone in this conversation, those that battle and those that don't. And I think that's an important starting place. I think often, uh, you know, we're conditioned to almost kind of go, if you find out that you're, you're or, you know, that you even can conceive a baby, that you should be sitting on that spectrum of being overly grateful because there are those who struggle with this. And yet, I think sometimes the reality is that somebody does fall pregnant unexpectedly, or, or as you said, that, you know, another person feels like I don't have the joy I'm told I should be having uh, in finding out the news. And there's a wonderful concept going around called motherhood resentment. So if you look at social media lately, all we see on Instagram is pictures of beautiful babies, gender reveals, happy moms, moms who aren't tired. It's this kind of picture that's idealistic. So we have this 
guilt when we're pregnant in terms of I got to be just like that. I got to be the perfect mom. Mm. I've got to lose my weight quickly. I've got to be really happy about this. And I must be in all honesty, even with the patients who are battling to have kids, it when that baby's born, the reality is not quite the same. And yet they're chasing this ideal. Mm. I want us I want us to, to, to go back a step and I want to almost sort of zoom in on, on the person who who's struggling to conceive. And, you know, I, I imagine that there must be associated stress, anxiety, etc. affecting them. And the question I want to put forward for them is how would, you know, emotions such as stress, anxiety and depression affect the ability to conceive in the first place and then ultimately to give birth to a healthy baby? I think that opens up a good concept in terms of chronic stress. If we're looking at what is good stress and what is bad stress, good stress is the stuff that you and I worry about on a day-to-day basis. Mm. Good stress is when we have a fight-flight response. So there's adrenaline and there's something that we can do to overcome that trigger or that Mm. hook. But we find that amongst infertility patients, 90% of the stuff that they're worrying about is actually chronic stress and bad for them. They're worrying about things that are out of their control, number one being their infertility. So they go to sleep at night, they become consumed by this, their goals change, and we know that the field of psychoneuroimmunology says that the two are very much interrelated. Mm. We know that if somebody loses a spouse six to eight months later, you know, if they've been married a long time, the immune system might take a knock. Same thing with infertility. The more you stress about it, the less likely it is to happen. Now, I'm not saying to everyone out there, you can't stress about infertility. Mm -hmm. That is real. But if you're going to stress about it, take action, go and speak to someone and put in some sort of reaction Mm. or some solution, because then we're channeling it in the right direction. And we know if we manage that stress, the outcome is far better. I mean, I love what you're saying about, I think the the stress is warranted to some extent, but I love that you're offering, do something about it. You know, don't just sit with that stress, go and, you know, and consult, um, get some, get some, Mm -hmm. some person who's going to assist you to get some semblance of control. I think the word control was important there. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about some of the common emotional struggles that women may experience sort of during pregnancy. So we've spoken to the fertility challenges, somebody who's struggling to conceive and some of the associated stresses. Let's talk a little bit about now I discover that I am pregnant, I am expecting, what are some of the common emotional struggles that you have seen? So I guess amongst a lot of the patients I see is how fat am I going to get? <laughs> they tend to ask, how should I be picking up weight? What are the markers? So I often say to patients, first thing is join a support group that can manage your weight and give you some sort of ideas to how you're going. Mm. The second thing is everyone's scared of this first trimester. We see pictures of people throwing up. We see pictures of of people being absolutely fatigued. And it's not the same with everyone. It's definitely not the same. Mm. It might be a little bit tiring the first trimester. There might be more symptoms, but it does get better. Mm. The third thing is they're often terrified about the birth. So they're worried about how their body's going to change, but how am I going to get this baby out? And I see amongst... The younger, the younger women nowadays are saying they want to go 
the natural birth route. There seems to be this shift between I don't want medication, mm. I just want to give birth naturally. And along with that is this fear of what do I do? Mm. Do I give birth naturally? What doctor do I see? What are the benefits? Am I going to be able to breastfeed? A lot of people, and I'll say it here, they've had um, plastic surgery mm. and they're worrying about will I be able to breastfeed? And a big thing is what is it going to do to my body? What is it going to do to my relationship? I spoke to a GP who said the highest divorce rate in his practice is the first 18 months of a baby's life. So when a father comes to him and says in his practice, I want a divorce and the baby's only a toddler, they realize that this is specific to that that age group. Rather rethink it. Let's put some strategies in to manage it than actually just have this knee-jerk reaction. It's so interesting when you when you mentioned the you know the weight gain and am I going to get fat as one I chuckled and I suppose it was because I mean I sit with that I've just had a third and and losing the weight after the pregnancy has been the biggest challenge yeah. and I've seen its impact in terms of my self esteem I've seen the impact in terms of kind of asking myself how does my husband now yes. look at me so I think it's it's mm-hmm. real uh, you know, it, it does happen and I'm, and I'm struggling a little bit as we, as we sit here having the conversation. So I, I'm curious about, I mean, you talk about, uh, you know, some of the trends that you're seeing, particularly amongst the younger group. And you talk about, you know, they worry about their birth, et cetera, but, but they also are, are choosing to go the natural route. And I wonder to what end the technology they have access to actually assists them because it gives them information. So being able to, to, you know, to Google, to look something up. Has, has that been useful in terms of alleviating some of these stresses and these challenges that, you know, we typically have during this period? See, I think going on to Google, whatever you type in, you're going to find either evidence for or evidence against. Mm. I often say when my ladies fall pregnant, choose one person, almost wear a bib on your chest that says, I only listen to my doctor <laughs> because everybody's going to give their opinions. Everyone's going to tell you a horror story about some delivery that went wrong. Everyone's going to give their opinions and you need to own your own narrative about what you want. Mm. And you need to be comfortable within you that there's another narrative if things don't go according to plan. Mm. Because a big cause of postnatal depression is when our birth plan doesn't go according to what we wrote down. Or what we envisaged. Mm. So have an alternative always, because it might not go that way. And I love that you're touching on, on postnatal depression. We'll come to that a little bit later. I do want to, I mean, so, so you talk about how some of the emotional struggles in the beginning, the common ones, you speak about the weight gain. You also make mention of the fact that there's this fear around the first trimester and what it typically presents. Uh, you know, the, the expecting lady with. So things like fatigue. Um, but the reality is that there are changes hormonally. And I just want to, to, to explore that a little bit. You know, what role do, do the hormones play in, in the emotional experience that a pregnant or expecting person has? So your emotions definitely, they change throughout the pregnancy. And mm. one thing I've noticed with women is when you're pregnant, you have more dreams, more vivid dreams. So there's certain hormones that are happening and you'll often dream that you're giving birth to an animal or a pig or your baby disappears or you, you 
don't have a human inside you because mm. your dreams are more vivid. And that's almost the body's way of making you wake up during the night and have to go to the loo mm. and then come back. Your prolactin is going up. So that's what makes your breasts, your breasts ready to, to actually feed your baby. So all these changes are corresponding with emotional things. Second trimester, there's far less hormones being secreted. But that first trimester, your progesterone is shooting up. And that's often why patients who are on supplemented progesterone or have maybe had an IVF baby, Hmm. they sometimes report feeling a bit worse than others in that first trimester. They bloat a little bit. They feel a bit more tearful. They maybe get a bit more constipated, but it is temporary. Once we withdraw that, that's because the progesterone's feeding the placenta. Mm. Once the baby can do it itself, that next trimester seems much easier for them. And then, of course, we get that last trimester where the hormones secreted are trying to relax your ligaments Mm. and you're feeling uncomfortable and you're needing to go to the toilet during the night more often. And all of it, I suppose, necessary to, to this process. So all of it. I mean, I think, I think what I'm also hearing you say is that it's absolutely normal to, 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 to have those weird, unexpected, strange dreams. Um, I, I remember I, I became quite obsessed with this concept of, am I going to give birth to a baby who has albinism? <laughs> I don't know where it came from, but I just, I had this ongoing, sort of weird feeling and and I think I may even have dreamt it and Mm. and had we not had this conversation I might have been sort of sitting quietly thinking I'm strange or I'm Mm -hmm. weird and I'll never share this and I think I think it's important to understand that some of those hormones can cause us to think you know things or to dream things that we typically would not and it's normal yes we also talking again to self-esteem and body image During that time, especially the first trimester, you can't really tell someone's pregnant. Mm. So they're picking up four, five kilos. And then at least the second trimester, there's a bit of a bump. And the weight sort of stabilizes. People can see you pregnant. Mm. And then that last trimester, I find that women battle because, number one, they might be kind of uncomfortable to have intercourse. They start worrying about, does my husband see me as just a vessel? Just as someone carrying his baby, am I just a mother or am I still that attractive woman that he fell in love with before I was pregnant? So there's a big sense of lack of self-esteem. I often find that a lot of women battle with those issues, even the most beautiful women. Mm. And you've got to understand that hormones have the strength to change what we're thinking about different triggers. Mm. So if your husband's always played golf before you were pregnant and you were cool, you could go to the spa and you were fine. Now that you're pregnant, him going to golf, you're going to interpret it very differently mm. from a different lens. And it's going to make you feel insecure. So it is pretty normal during pregnancy to feel a bit insecure. And because we you're to- interpreting things from that hormonal lens. Yes. <laughs> Yes, very, very hormonal. I mean, if if there's a gentleman who's listening to the conversation and, and they're saying something like, oh, I can relate. Uh, you know, I couldn't relate to my wife. Something changed completely. I've been playing golf all along and now all of a sudden going to golf is an issue. What does he do? How does he respond? What What support can he give her as opposed to make life easier for everybody in the house? 
I think a lot of men also, when their wives fall pregnant, and I speak from experience, my husband's a gynecologist. So as a student, they were taught when your patient falls pregnant, she's a pregnant mother and you switch off because you're a gyne and you're seeing lovely women every day. So a lot of men do tend to switch off sexually or attracted to their husbands. They tend to switch that off. They think that they're protecting the baby. They think that somehow they're protecting the mom and they're giving her space and she's uncomfortable, but it actually is doing the reverse. And I say to couples during the pregnancy, if you can just do a date night once a week or Mm. even once a month, Mm. even if you're not intimate at all, if you can just spend some time together, not talking about babies, not going to baby city, just getting the two of you back together, things that you've always done. And having said that, I say to moms, once that baby's born, if you can get a gran or a sitter or someone from when that baby is a week old, Mm. even if that person is sitting in the house watching the baby, continue that time with your spouse. I love that. I I mean, I really do, because I I think it's important to approach it from the perspective that on the one hand, you've got this woman who's pregnant and there's all that hormonal and emotional, you know, stuff happening. But to also appreciate that there are partners in, in the same space and, and they're going through the most as well, I imagine. So, so really appreciating that. And I think it leads me to my follow on question around how can, how can ex- these expectant parents prepare themselves emotionally for the arrival of a new baby? And I like some of what you've already put forward. So if you're a couple, continue to, you know, to do those date nights. Um, mm-hmm. Don't always talk about baby. What are some of the other things they can do to prepare emotionally for baby coming? Look, I think hopefully if the couple's been together a while, they've sort of negotiated roles and responsibilities. I know with my husband, He's not going to get up at night for a baby. I need to get someone to help me if I want that. I had clear expectations. Mm. So I knew he would rather say, let's get someone to help you. I'm not going to do it. So I think have your expectations realistic. If you can, do negotiate kind of bedtime routines. The best that I did was every Saturday morning, I said, that is my morning. You get up at five o'clock and I'm going to have the morning to sleep. I didn't need to go out. I didn't need to do anything, but I needed that morning to sleep. So I think if you can negotiate those responsibilities Mm. and women make this mistake, and I don't know again if it's social media, but that men should be half, half. And yes, they should take responsibility. But what happens is our expectations are that we each going to share half, half, all the responsibilities and the roles. And sometimes that's not possible because the male might be working, you might be at home, Mm. and maybe your husband's not going to take the baby out alone. Mm. So for me, the biggest thing is to have those expectations upfront in terms of what are we going to do. And jump in and help your wife. When she's tired, if she's got to feed the baby, if you can just burp the baby or change Mm. the baby, put it down. And be cognizant about suicide hour. Between five and seven at night is dreadful. That's when babies are hungry. That's when they are tired. That's when you have had the end of the day. Maybe make some sort of effort to be there around that time, even if you've got to go back then and work on your laptop. Yeah, it, I mean, it's not, it's not easy. 
and I'm, mm. and I'm thinking about it. I mean, we're talking about, um, you know, a situation where it's, it's couples, uh, where there is that support, as it were. I'm, I'm thinking about the woman who also does it alone mm. and some of the emotional, you know, roller coaster that she goes through, but, but yes. doing it alone predominantly. What, mm. what do we say to her? How does she create some kind of emotional support around herself without, you know, a partner, as it were? So, Hopefully she's got some family or friends that she can call on, but that's not always possible. I oftentimes say if you've got somebody who you can even delegate to just for an hour in your presence, keep in mind even the single moms I see, the new moms, they're very reluctant to give that newborn to someone else to hold, right? You know best, you feel entitled to this baby, it's part of your attachment, it's nature, but sometimes we've got to just relinquish it a little bit, mm. even in your presence. Mm. The second thing I say to those moms is join some sort of baby group, and there's many that are around town. If you can make the effort to just go and sit with these moms once a week, and they say it's about the babies, they say it's about fun and gross motor skills, but it's actually about the mom. Mm. And it's about that community, right? Yes. Finding a community who, who are, you're all going through the same thing. And, mm. and so to be able to have those people that you can talk to, sometimes we sit, I think, and, and you can go through something and, and really internalize it and kind of go, it's me by myself and yeah. get quite sad about it. And, yeah. and yet sitting in a room with women who also share their experiences, I think can, can get you to realize I'm not, I'm not alone. Yes. And if you, even if you go into social media, there are groups called single moms by choice mm. or moms that are posting on TikTok more realistic versions of their day. Mm. There's almost this trend to say it's not as good as it looks. And I think, I think that does help a lot of moms. So if you're sitting there scrolling and you need to realize the only urgent and important thing you need to do with your baby is feed your baby. And secondly, maybe change its nappy. Mm. If you cannot cope with the rest, throw the routine out the window. Mm. Throw the having to take photos or go to the shops or go and visit anyone or have guests over. You just got to feed that baby. And if one day is overwhelming, leave the rest. Mm. You don't need to get dressed. Mm. You can lie in the bed with your newborn for six weeks if you want to. I think it's encouraging to hear that, uh, particularly against the background of this need to appear perfect, this need to appear as if I have everything under control. I think the reality is that a little person has come into your life, it does cause a certain level of disruption, and you will find rhythm again. Yes. But it's okay in the beginning, you know, for, for some things to almost, you know, just let it slide. It's okay. I remember when I had my firstborn, I had read all these books on what time to put them to sleep, how mm. to swaddle them, what the room temperature should be. And I tried that and it didn't work. And someone said to me, just take a notebook and let your baby do what she wants and kind of write down for a week when she falls asleep, when does she scream. And by the age of six weeks, she will establish her own routine. Already after 10 days of doing that, I could see she wanted to sleep at 10 in the morning. She only wanted to go to sleep very late. Mm. She was an alert baby. 
but I made it predictable and allowed her to form her own routine. Mm. Now, a lot of moms want to follow all these routines and bedtimes and bath times, but sometimes that gets overwhelming in itself. Mm. And then it's not the end of the world if you break the routine. It takes again, two days to put it right. 100%. I think, again, it's to say whilst, whilst the guidance is readily available and it could for, you know, come in the form of, I don't know, a conversation with a close friend or advice from a parent or even, you know, Googling something. I think the reality is that it's about you finding that which works for you and, and, and your, your little baby who's come. I want to talk a little bit about, and I think we've touched on it to some extent, you know, some of the common emotional challenges that new parents may face. And specifically, again, I'm reminded of my own experience with the first where uh, my baby had colic. Mm. And so this baby cried nonstop for three months. And I thought I was going to lose my mind. Let's talk a little bit about some of those experiences, common emotional challenges that new parents may face and some of the support that they could, you know, get. So I think that first thing is, is my baby going to stop breathing like I, they are giving me this newborn at the maternity ward. I don't know what to do. And so people plan antenatal classes. They learn how to swaddle. They learn how to bath their babies. But I'm telling all the new moms out there, the best lessons you will get is in the maternity ward mm. with the sisters and they will teach you and you'll learn by fire in one day. Women have historically given birth to babies in the wild, in hundreds, thousands of years ago, and we're resilient or we wouldn't be a population of over 7 billion people. Mm. The majority of the world do not have somebody who goes home with them, do not deliver in a hospital, mm. and their babies are robust and their babies survive. Mm. So if it's easy for you to go and buy a certain brand name pureed food, that's what you do. That's how our mothers did it. Mm. You don't need to sit there and cook meals from scratch and make sure that everything is going according to what you, these preconceived ideas you had. Number two, everyone wants to visit you when you have your newborn. And I often say to moms, rather than having them all come there one Tuesday, one Wednesday, one Thursday, have your husband or your partner set up one day, like a Sunday, mm. three o'clock in the afternoon where everyone comes at once and you can hold your baby. You can escape to the room and breastfeed. Mm. You can give your newborn to your mother or a friend so that it's not passed around, mm. but everything is then done at one go. Get sleep mm. if you can, when mm. you've got that gap. And I know everyone says, well, when baby sleeps, you should sleep and we never do it. But there's nothing to stop you from putting a newborn on your bed with you and the baby's awake and you're fast asleep so long as the baby's protected and you know that the baby's safe. Mm. So there are those concerns I know when moms go out. There's also the concern that breastfeeding looks so wonderful in the pictures. And I remember when I started breastfeeding, I thought it would be easy. You could lift up your top and feed your baby, cover yourself. But to get my children to latch took probably 10 minutes, mm. and it was a mission. So acknowledge that sometimes maybe it doesn't work for you, mm. and that's okay. And again, I think that's important to say. I know I've I've spoken to a couple of ladies who – 
who will have expressed that part of that plan was I'm going to breastfeed for X amount mm. of time. And when that doesn't happen, mm. you actually almost get a sense that it, it, it hits them hard. Yeah. It almost feels like it's a reflection on, on my abilities as a mother. Mm. And I don't feel like I'm being good enough because at the most basic level, I should be able to feed my child. Yes. And so it's important, I think, to say, look, this is not a reflection on, yes. on your abilities as a mother. Just some kids don't latch. Mm. Mm. Okay, so so let's let's keep it moving. I want to talk a little bit about, you know, the baby is here and often, you know, we're told that once baby comes, you have that. I mean, I think about television. So the baby comes and in all the movies, what happens is mommy looks at baby and she does this thing where she falls in love instantly. I know I didn't have that. And so the question I want to ask is, you know, what 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 are some of the things parents can do to develop a positive emotional bond with that newborn baby? So, I mean, every newborn baby that comes out is not very pretty. In <laughs> fact, I go to a lot of deliveries and they all look the same. Mm. The more hair they've got, the more I'm attracted to them maybe, but actually they all look the same. During pregnancy, that's when you start bonding maybe to your baby. And, and I say maybe because not all moms bond during pregnancy. I'm not a sentimental person. I didn't talk to my babies. I didn't wrap my tummy. I didn't do any of that stuff. I bought what I wanted to because it was nice. And when that baby is born, it's not this instant love. Mm. I must tell you that oxytocin does go up. That's what, what happens in all mammals to actually make us bond to our offspring. Mm. So it does go up. But a lot of moms are exhausted. They expect to feel this immediate sense of love they're sore they try and breastfeed and get out that colostrum at the beginning it's not pleasant Mm. they may be constipated Mm. and i'd say it's almost that first three weeks is when maybe or even that first three months when you start attaching and you really know this little person Of course you love your baby and of course you're going to die for your baby. Mm. But what happens in those first three weeks is it's just demand feed. It is just trying to make this baby be okay and survive. Mm. And then the sleep deprivation catches up. So I often get moms saying, the first week is great. My newborn sleeps. i got to wake her up for a feed. But eventually, it's like this graph that as the baby gets bigger, it wakes up more often. Mm. And by the time 21 days comes, and it's a marker with a lot of my moms, that's when they're at risk for anxiety and maybe depression because the sleep has now got far and far less and now it's caught up with them. And again, I think it correlates with something you said earlier about the importance of getting that sleep. Sleep with baby. Um, and even if baby wakes up, just to ensure that the environment is safe and protected for baby. Yes. I, 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 I want to just interrogate something you said a, l- a little bit, uh, because I think it's important for us to think about practical things that we can, we can, we can give those who are listening around building that positive emotional bond. So I get that this person is, 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 is tired. So there's fatigue. Uh, they may not be sleeping well. Uh, you know, baby is demanding in terms of baby's needs, etc. I I once heard, and in fact, I've practiced it, that that putting baby just on your skin for something as simple as just putting baby on your skin is actually 
it contributes to building that positive emotional bond. What are some of those things that we can do that don't require much from us, sort of physically, but that we know in some shape or form contribute to that positive emotional bonding? So the best thing I ever did was I love my baths. Now, there is no rule that says a baby can only be bathed once a day or every third day. I used to put my newborn on a towel next to the bath and I used to get in the bath and then put my newborn on my chest and we used to sit in the water. (laughs) And every time they screamed, that was my go-to. Whether I had two toddlers in tow and a newborn, we would all get in the bath. And moms, I promise you it works. So if you're newborn, if you're having to get in the bath three times a day, Mm. it actually helps you relax. It helps you bond to your baby. And there's a lot of truth set for this, what we call kangaroo care. Mm. Babies in NICU who don't have access to an incubator will often put them on the mom's chest. And what happens is our body temperature regulates their body temperature. And you'll see if... A friend gives you a hug and holds you when you're down. Mm. Your breathing will actually start assimilating that person who's holding you. So when we're exceptionally anxious and we go to someone who's breathing calmly and is just a comforting force, our breathing and our heart rate actually starts mimicking, almost like a a Mm. monitor. Mm. And same thing with the baby. And that's why often if a mom is anxious and she's got her screaming baby in her arms, the baby's feeling that heart rate go up. Mm. And that's why sometimes someone else will take the baby and it'll stop crying. It's not because mom's not bonded to the baby or the baby doesn't want the mom, but it's because that other person is not as frazzled and they're Ah. able to calm down that heart rate and give the baby back to you. I mean, this is an insight for me. It's not personal. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's just karma. Yes. Okay. Yes. That's wonderful. Let's let's talk a little bit about the resources that are available out there. So I think you've given such practical sort of tips and, and suggestions, um, you know, around things one can do within the home. What what resources are available for mommy, mommy to be? Or, or even their families, um, you know, who are experiencing some of the emotional difficulties we've already spoken about. If we look at moms who are maybe struggling to conceive, there are groups and support groups for those moms that they can go and talk to, and they are available in person or online. Then we look at new moms, and there's wonderful applications where you can actually, from certain medical aids as well, you can actually go on to the their site and they will take you through month by month or week by week. Mm. It's really enjoyable to actually see how your baby's developing and have some sort of input throughout the pregnancy. During pregnancy, antenatal classes. And again, I think baptism by fire happens in the hospital when your baby's there, but you get a good support system from the antenatal groups because those babies are born around the same time as yours, and I've seen lasting friendships go beyond that. Once your baby's born, there are also groups that you can join Mm. that kind of babies born the same time, what are the milestones, what are the circumstances, and when the baby hits around about eight weeks, there are little groups you can take your baby to where there's other babies the same age. Mm. And I think it's also important there where you can, especially for the husband, 
while you're going through the pregnancy, he's able to get this input as to what's happening in your body, mm. what to expect every week. It's an exciting thing you can do as a couple. Okay. So so I want to go back to something you, you spoke about earlier. You touched on postnatal depression. And and I want to go back to that because I think that's, that's uh, I mean, it's quite prevalent. It's very prevalent. And it is the most undiagnosed mental disorder across the whole spectrum. And why? Because moms don't speak about it. Because moms think it's normal or on the other extreme that I can't tell anyone because they're going to think there's something wrong. Mm. A huge misconception is postnatal depression is not not loving your baby. That's postpartum psychosis. That is 5% of the women who are depressed who do not attach to their baby. Those are women who we put in a psychiatric hospital or those are women who need intervention. Mm. The majority, which is 95%, are in fact overly attached to their baby. And I mean that in a nice way. Mm. They're actually more anxious about their baby's welfare Mm. than maybe what someone who's not depressed is. So postnatal depression is something that you are attached to your baby, you have a bond, you love your baby, and it starts off being diagnosed around about three weeks, Mm. where the first three weeks we can expect that you're tired and we can expect that you're tearful as the hormones settle. Once we hit three weeks, it starts presenting initially as an anxiety. So every time your baby makes a noise, there's this accelerated heart rate. When your husband starts going to work or you're alone at home, there's this feeling of living feed to feed and bottle to bottle or nappy to nappy change. When Monday feels like Sunday, feels like a public holiday. And that's when we start seeing the warning signs mm. where there's just nothing to look forward to and you start isolating yourself. And postnatal depression is one of the mental disorders that we can very easily change in a few weeks. Mm -hmm. We can easily give the mom skills. There are medications available. We can help them through it quicker than what we can with other disorders, Mm. just by giving them practical skills. Listening listening to you talk about postnatal depression, I'm sitting here thinking, but isn't this the experience all mothers have at, at the beginning of a pregnancy, particularly if it's your first pregnancy? For, for, is is there a clear line between these are some of the normal things that happen? So so that fatigue that I'm moving from feed to feed, that that Sunday does feel like it's it's Monday or could be Tuesday. For me, it feels like it's just kind of what normally happens when it, when a new person arrives. What is where do we draw the line around when it crosses over to to being diagnosed as postnatal depression? So I think the first thing is there's an exceptional amount of anxiety. Mm. So worrying about the baby in excess of what you did before. Mm-hmm. So worrying, when is she going to wake up? Is she okay? Has she got a fever? When are her vaccines due? So it's excessive anxiety, mm. which then starts impeding your sleep. So even when you go to sleep, you're thinking, I may as well stay awake and wait for the next feed, mm. or I can't sleep because I'm worrying chronically. And then – so. It's the anxiety, and then it starts being there's nothing to look forward to anymore. Mm. In the first three weeks, you maybe have this outlook that things will get better, and it's going to turn the corner, and I'm going to feel better. She's going to be bigger. But 
when these moms have postnatal depression, they don't see that mm. there is a better future. In fact, they look through this lens of when she crawls, it's going to be worse. And then sure. she's walking. Then she's a teenager. So everything just seems overwhelming. Okay. And they withdraw. So they don't tend to reach out and ask for help. And, then and, sh- and I suppose my follow-on question then becomes, so, so where do they go for help? What, what does a person, if they're listening and they go, everything you've said is, is, is me right now, what, what is the first step they take in, in, in getting to a better place? First step, I would speak to the clinic sister. You're going for weigh-ins at the beginning or you're going for your vaccinations. Mm. If you're not likely to speak to your husband or a friend or a mother, is speak to the clinic sister or your your doctor mm. because they're very good at picking it up. And other people might just push it aside. If you go online, there are good support groups for postnatal depression. And sometimes just speaking about it and allowing ourselves that permission to actually say, this is not as great as what I thought mm. is going to help you a lot of the way there. It's going to make those expectations more realistic for you. Mm. But I would say first point of call, speak to your doctor or clinic sister or your GP and, and, and let them have a look at what's going on. And, and I mean, if I just think about, and we've just, you know, segmented or taken postnatal depression as, as one example of the many other experiences people can have. I, I, I ask myself the question sort of, you know, could could something like this, having gone through an experience like this, have an impact in terms of future pregnancies? So some kind of trauma, some kind of negative emotional experience, does it have an impact in terms of future pregnancies? It does. If you have possibly had a miscarriage or battled with infertility or had a, a trauma like a preterm labor or a placenta rupture or an unexpected C-section, it takes almost the naivety of your next pregnancy away. Mm. You are waiting for those signs. You are anxious prior to all of this this happening. Mm. And I've got to sit with those moms and say to them, it's okay that right now you're maybe not bonding to your baby. Mm. But if we don't manage your anxiety, it can put you at risk for a postnatal depression. So let's just get you to manage your pregnancy in terms of month by month or even week by week until we get closer to when you've got to deliver. And beyond that is to have, like I said, if you've had a complication, Mm. is go to a doctor that knows how to deal with that complication. Your history is important. We'll worry about the bonding later. Your history is important. I'm thinking about, you know, if you if you switch gynecologists um, and, and, and how you can lose some of that history that, that you actually almost want to. Your history is important. Yes. Yeah. It, it's going to be useful for other pregnancies as well. So let's talk a little bit about cultural and societal factors, you know, that can get that can influence, uh, you know, the emotional experience of conception, pregnancy, childbirth, etc. I want to hear from you about some of the stories <laughs> that you have to share with us. Are there examples of where culture uh, you know, contributed to the emotional experience of somebody going from conception through to birth. I remember when I was studying at WITS, there was a wonderful book written about traditional reproduction. I think on the front it had a mother and and her daughter 
and then the baby at the bottom. And for me, it was showing that as we become mothers, we become closer to our mothers because years ago, who delivered your baby was your mother helped or now midwives have taken over. Mm. But culturally and socially, even now, even though we have these fancy hospitals and we have doctors and we still, when we give birth, the one person who we become potentially closer to and who gives us the best stories and the best advice is our mother. Mm. And that transcends. Now, that makes it difficult for in-laws, mother-in-laws, because if you have a daughter, your bond with that baby appears Mm. maybe a little bit stronger. When you don't have a mother or you don't have a good relationship with your mother, we know that's a big sign of postnatal depression or an indicator that it could happen. Mm. Other stories I've heard is women unable to conceive and their husbands need to produce an heir. And almost with consent, the husband is allowed to take on another wife or another partner to produce an heir. Mm. And it breaks my heart because these women are so sad that they can't be mothers. Mm. And yet they know how important this is culturally and they will allow for this to happen. And it's heartbreaking for the child as well. And again, I mean, what do we what do we say to that woman who finds herself in 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 such a situation? You know, mm-hmm. does, does she are there support groups for for women who go through some of those cultural stigma? You know you what? Know? There is a a lovely support group called Hannah. You're not alone. Mm. Run by Pastor Jerry Zwani and Karabo Zwani, and they talk about reproduction and pregnancy in the African culture, mm. and. I love it because Jerry will preach, but from a wonderful, he's got a great sense of humor. They run a support group and an online platform on Instagram. I think it's called Tea with Karabo. It's every second Sunday. And they speak openly about this and they acknowledge these women. Mm. And it's called Hannah, You're Not Alone, so that all these women can come together and share their stories. Mm. I mean, that's important to know. Hannah, you are not alone. I think it's incredibly empowering. I think about black African culture, mm-hmm. um, you know, and some of the stigmatization that happens around sort of conception, the ability, if you can't conceive or if there's fertility issues, um, there's a lot of stigma around it. And I think it's important for whoever's listening who finds himself in that situation to know that there is support out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you really are not alone. Hannah, you are not alone. Jerry uh, Zwane. And I'll, I'll check it out as yes. well. I am going to come to, to the end of the conversation. And I think, let me thank you for, for how you always are, are quite practical in terms of what you offer those who are listening. I love how you make it simple and easy to sort of grasp and understand, uh, you know, some of the, the technical and, and complicated language around some of these things. If, if you had to, I don't know, you know, offer a word of encouragement. Uh, to somebody who's listened to this and who's still feeling a little bit down and isn't quite sure kind of what a next step is, what would you say to them? I have it tattooed on my ribs. This too shall pass. Amen. (laughs) Yes. It's phases. I promise you, if you look at, break it up, three weeks, six weeks, three months, Mm. the colic stops, Mm. and then it starts becoming a bit more enjoyable. Okay. 
So it does get better. And I think you yes. heard from Mandy Rodriguez. Uh, she says, this too shall pass. Uh, take it day by day. Take it in the stages. Um, it does get better. So from me, thank you so much uh, for the conversation. You. Thank you for the work that you do. Uh, continue to do uh, the amazing work. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Hashtag Fairing Pod. Join the conversation by following us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube under Fairing South Africa. Have you been diagnosed with IBD? Download the Fairing IBD Health Diary app today. The Fairing IBD Health Diary app is available on the Apple App Store and the Android Google Play Store.